0: Hi, I'm Lisa Levin. And I'm Julie Sapper. We're the co-founders of Run Farther and Faster and co-hosts of the podcast Under the Same name.
1: While well, we started this podcast as a Boston Marathon-focused podcast based on the experiences from our combined 31 finishes. We cover all things running related. We've coached
0: runners of all levels and goal distances all over the world for over 13 years. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so excited you're here. Hi, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? It's going great. I am just happy because we're like in spring slash summer now, so I love this time of year. So I'm 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 good. <laughs> and then there's no training going on. There's no races coming up, which I I really welcome this time. Kind of just like I don't know, low pressure. So it's I, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing great because did you hear
1: there was a bear roaming my neighborhood? This I knew, and it was caught. It was caught. Yes. I did see that it was trapped
0: in a big bear trap. How crazy is that? That's crazy. Yeah. So and, and for I anyone would... who's listening, like we live in a suburban area. It's not like we live out in the mountains or in a rural area. Like we live in a, in a very suburban area. So to have a, a bear. And actually there were two, I don't, was it the same bear that was in Kensington? Did it make it all the way to Rockville? Uh I have no idea. I just know that this bear was hanging out in Rockville
1: for a few days. He or she was enjoying one neighborhood adjacent to my neighborhood for a few days. And then he or she w- wandered over to my neighborhood and was really enjoying um, the pond and was hanging out there. And last night, um, it was Sunday night, apparently uh, the bear was wandering around a very populated area of the neighborhood and people were out walking their dogs. So everybody was that. instructed to be inside and of course, shelter in place, selfish, shelter in place. And of course, selfishly, I was thinking well, darn it. Am I going to be able to do my run tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) So I was relieved to see on the local news that The wonderful Department of Natural Resources uh, was able to work with uh, Montgomery County, I believe the police department, and they were able to hunt down the bear and the bear was removed from our neighborhood and taken to somewhere remote where he or she could live for the rest of their days, hopefully, and never to return. So it was a whole video I I actually shared on our Instagram stories of how they got the bear and put him in a bear trap was really fascinating and drove him onward so I just kept thinking about that song um from summer camp do you remember that song the other day the other day I met a
0: bear I met a bear I, I didn't I won't go to read. summer camp so okay <laughs> it,
1: it's like a whole oh okay. anyway it was through my head the whole weekend so my point is I'm happy that the bear is gone and now you can run, yeah, without can fear run. <laughs> and how is your running going Julie Uh, my running is going fine. Thank you. I'm really pleased to share that last week. I shared that I did seven miles. Um, and this week I ran with, uh, Jen Schwartz, another friend I haven't run with since November. And we did almost eight and a half miles at a very easy pace. And I felt great And I'm, I'm doing well. I'm very slowly, gradually increasing my mileage each week. And I'm running right now, um, three to four days a week. And as I just mentioned, my long run is up to eight and a half and I'm just kind of sitting in it and seeing how I feel. And so for example, on Sunday, after running eight and a half on Saturday, I felt really, really tired yesterday, like super, super tired. And I recognized very quickly that it was likely the result of putting my body through something that my body has not done since November. And I need to keep that in mind because while eight and a half miles for someone like me who has been running distance for quite some time, doesn't seem like a lot for right now. I'm a brand new runner again. And I, I really need to honor that and respect the fact that it's going to impact me every time a little differently. And I need to keep that in mind. So, um, Thanks for asking. I feel really lucky. And just, I keep knocking on wood that this continues while recognizing that I need to really listen to my body as I continue increasing my mileage incrementally.
0: And what does PT look like now? Are you continuing that? Like how often are you doing that? Are you doing exercises on your own. What does that rehab continue to look like?
1: So I'm going to PT now once a week instead of twice a week. And then I'm still working with my trainer, Lauren, twice a week. So she has me doing a lot harder things at this point, because really the goal is to not just continue to increase my overall strength, but I really want to get my quads as strong as possible. Whereas before it was strengthening my quads so that they're even, um, now it's more about getting them even stronger than they were before because my glutes are strong but the, the insertional point in my quad where my knee and my quad meet, that's a lot of where the weakness is after these types of surgeries. And I need to get that super, super strong. And while it's strong right now and I can do plenty of wall sits and things like that, I'm trying to stress it a little bit more just to, to prophylactically have it as strong as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lauren had me doing some heavy sled pushing. I'm doing a lot of, tough upper body work. And then a lot of stuff still with bands, a lot of lateral movements. And I've started also doing more plyometrics. I'm jump roping a lot. I'm doing, um, jumps up and down from a box. And so I'm trying to just be as well-rounded as possible. And I'm really enjoying the workout so much, I think so much more than before, because I'm now able to run again. So it's making the workouts more of a treat versus before it felt like another form of PT.
0: Right. Awesome. Very good. Thank you. Building back stronger, stronger and better. Try, I'm doing my best. <laughs> okay, so tell me what's building, new with you. Well, what's new with me? Not not much really. <laughs> not, nothing. No news. No news is good news, I guess. But really nothing. No, nothing on the horizon. Nothing, uh, you know, just uh, nothing. Enjoying the kind of the quiet, like a little bit downtime right now. Although, you know, we've been really busy uh, bringing in new clients. That's that's one thing we've been, uh, you know, really busy doing. This, this happens. It's like cyclical for us. You know, we get through a a, a, usually a marathon training cycle but some sort of training cycle and then we get an influx you know some people take a break some people continue coaching with us for um through recovery into their next goals but um and then we get a big influx of new people so we um we're full up for for may we, we limit our roster you and i have learned over the years it's just the two of us and um we do work on you know on together on all of our schedules and we keep apprised of all of all of our clients, even though one or the other of us might be the point person. but we know that there's a there's a kind of a maximum that we can take on um, and still give everyone the individual attention that they want. So we have in the past probably a couple of years really had to put a cap on how many we take. So we kind of closed off May. Um, And now um, I I think we were just talking about this. I think we're kind of maxed out for June. Um, We've got a big, long list of people who are starting in June and we don't want to overcommit. So if there's anybody who's listening, who's thinking, start thinking about training for, um, you know, whatever their fall goal race may be, or thinking of of talking to us to, to help with their training, whatever that training may look like. Reach out now and make sure that we at least kind of pencil you in and plan accordingly. We like to spread out, stagger our start time so that we can make sure everybody, again, that we're giving everyone individualized attention. We start from scratch for all schedules. So we're really looking at it in an individual, and it takes a lot of time to put together a schedule and not only put together the schedule, but then communicate it to our runners and make sure they understand why we're doing what we're doing, what the terminology means, what their schedule means, how to connect their Garmin, how to communicate with us. Um, so that onboarding process takes a lot of time for everybody. And and we enjoy that because that's when we get to, you know, really, um, get to know our runners and, and make, you know, make sure that they're, they get started off, um, pun intended on, on the right foot. So if anybody listening is thinking of talking to us about, about, uh, working together for, um, your upcoming goals, like reach out, um, we'd love to work with you, but got to make sure we schedule, um, spread out the start dates. Well said, Lisa.
1: All right, so now we want to introduce our guest this week. Her name is Christine Yu, and Christine is the author of the brand new book, which is going to be released on May 16th. It's called Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. And Christine Yu's name may be familiar to some of our listeners because she's written a lot of science articles that focus on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. Her writing has appeared in magazines such as Outside, Runner's World, Women's Running, and even the Columbia Medicine Magazine. And she's also had several articles in the Washington Post. She's a lifelong athlete and yoga teacher. And as a lifelong athlete, she realized firsthand that there was a lack of studies that included women. And we've talked about this, Lisa, on our podcast a lot. Of course, we've had Stacey Sims on our podcast and others who have talked about that this is a problem. We we have... A real lack of data because women consistently are not used in a lot of studies, and yet those studies are then applied to women, and sometimes the results are not favorable to women. So in Christine's book, she digs deeper and and tries to better understand what has gone wrong, but also what, what has gone well over the last 50 years since women have made advances in athletics. And what we all recognize is that, of course, more women than ever are playing sports and staying active longer. And in her book, she really breaks down the science to see how can we do better and what is actually working. And this book had me at page one because in the intro to the book, Christine shares her own story, which is that she tore her ACL. And immediately my attention, of course, peaked because I was reading this book, recovering from my own ACL tear. And she shared um, it caused her because she's now torn it more than once to really pause and ask, why is this happening so much to girls, especially adolescent girls and women? What is it? Is it the chicken or the egg? Is it because of how women are built? Or is it because the way women are treated in sports? Are they getting exposure to enough movement patterns that would prevent perhaps an ACL tear? Or, or, or is it a fact of how women's bodies are structured, which is often what doctors have been saying, the way the hip and the knee alignment is. We don't know the answer, but her book really explores some of these. Another um, part of her book that it explores is the way are girls treated any differently with respect to concussions? Why is it that many girls struggle to recover from concussions and it takes longer for many girls to recover from concussions as opposed to boys? And we're talking about more high school sports. And then beyond that, um, in, in collegiate settings and beyond, is there any sort of correlation between the length of recovery in girls and women and a concussion versus boys and men? We don't know, but her book goes into this and explores it and digs deeper. And it's a really fascinating read. I so enjoyed it. And we were so grateful that Christine wanted to join us on the podcast to dig deeper into some of her findings. And we promise um, men out there listening to our podcast today, this is a great book because it is focusing on women and the science of women in sports, but it's also very relevant to just how we train and what we can do better in terms of training, what we need to be exposing our kids to in training and how we need to look at our athletics and sort of determine, am I exposing my body to enough movement patterns? What are the things, the myths that we have consistently bought into that may not necessarily be true, but because the myths are rooted in science that are comprised of studies that are mostly men are, are these truths for both genders and what defines gender. So there's, it's a really interesting conversation. And I so enjoyed talking with Christine and we definitely hope to have her back on the podcast again in some form because she's, she's just a really interesting person and has a, a lot to say. And of course, so, so smart. So it was really fun to talk with her. And before we forget, we also want to give away a copy of the book because uh, she was so generous and gave us two copies. And um, we wanted to give away one of our copies to a listener. And just like last time when we gave away Kara Goucher's book last month to enter to receive a copy of the book, we just ask that you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And then once you leave a review, just send us an email or a DM uh, letting us know that you left a review and we will throw your name in the hat for a drawing to win
0: a copy of the book. Yeah. It's a great book and a really great compilation of, of all of the, you know, the research and, um, you know, I think it takes a really deep dive into it, which is long overdue. Absolutely. So Lisa, I hope that you have
1: a great week. Thanks, Tuli. You too. Bye. Bye. Christine you welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. I am so excited to talk with you today. I know I just told you offline, but your book, Up to Speed, is fantastic. It is a must-read for athletes and coaches and parents, especially if you are a woman, or if you are raising a girl, or even if you're married to a woman. I think uh, it's important to better understand the why behind how women can be successful in athletics and why sometimes they aren't. And this book shares that all. And thank you so much for writing it. No,
2: I appreciate all those kind words. And I'm excited to be here and chat more about the book and you know everything we found.
1: Great. So let's get started. Um, why don't you share a little bit about your background, your athletic background, and your writing background?
2: Sure. So I'm a journalist, and I cover sports and science and health. Um, And journalism is kind of my second career, I guess, if you will. So I have a a degree in public policy, and I worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time. Um, But, you know, realized that I really missed storytelling and like, oh my gosh, there's a way that I can couldn't combine my love of sports and of science and health and writing. And it was like a, a whole new world for me. Um, so it's been really fun to do that. I've been pretty active throughout my life. I played sports ever since I was a kid. I mean, I don't really feel like I had a choice in the sense that like, as part of school, you had to do this. Um, So I feel like I've played everything under the sun growing up. Um, And it was an incredible experience, right? Like it was so much fun to be a part of a team to be with my friends out there. Now I mostly run. Um, I used to teach yoga, but I don't anymore. But I still practice yoga, you know, lift weights, love to swim, ski, surf. Uh, when I can.
1: And how old are you? If you don't mind me asking.
2: No, it's a good question. I have to do the math. Um, I am 46.
1: Totally get it. When we, after 40, (laughs) we have to start doing the math. So you, you have, you're someone who is, um, obviously raised after title IX, of course, but you also like Lisa and me sports looked a lot different when we were younger than they do now. And now you're someone in your forties. So you've also experienced what athletics looks like now. So What I really struck me in your book was first page was about your ACL injury. So can you talk for a moment about that? And those who listen to the podcast know already, I right now am recovering from an ACL injury, my first one at age 50. So Uh, that really struck me when I opened one of your book and there it was.
2: I'm very sorry that you are going through this. Um, So yeah, I, you know, I tore my ACL for the first time, um, while I was in college, I was standing abroad in Italy and friends of my, friends of mine and I, you know, we went up to Switzerland to ski for the weekend. Cause that's always, I mean, you're there, right? Like I can't, I couldn't pass it up. Um, and I've been skiing since I was a little kid and I I just fell wrong. Right. Like, and blew out my knee. Um, but I was young too. I would gosh, I'm at 21 maybe. So that whole process of recovering from that surgery and that injury was pretty like seamless. I don't remember it being a big deal. Um, fast forward to 15 years later, you know, I'm training for a half marathon marathon. I'm on the track. I'm doing some, you know, four hundreds and just on the last one, you know, I just felt something pop. Okay. And it's like, who tears are running on a track, right? Like that's not really something you would think of. Um, So yeah, it was super frustrating, you know, to have to go through that whole surgery again. And it kind of made, you know, made me again, feel like there's something wrong with my body and how it is um, because I also tend to be pretty injury prone, right? Like I've had IT band issues, Achilles tendonitis, you know, I've dislocated my shoulder. Like I feel like maybe I shouldn't be active. Um, So it was really kind of frustrating in that sense. Um, And ironically, I tore my ACL in my other knee this this February. So I'm nurse I'm nursing my third ACLs here right now, which is um hilarious and also so depressing. Um haven't decided yet what I'm doing with it. I can I couldn't get surgery yet just because of all the book stuff and travel planning right now. But
1: oh my gosh, Christine, we need to have a conversation offline and have a support group. Um I would imagine. Though that this time when you tore your ACL, you're probably looking at it from a different perspective, given you've written this book. And you're not looking at it from the lens of what have I done wrong? Because if there's one thing I got from this book, it was reassurance that there's nothing wrong with me, I haven't done something wrong. There's a construct that has guided women's athletics that has caused us to be treated. By physicians and for physicians, no shade on physicians to learn a certain way and coaches and etc. And that is part of the big picture. So talk to me and tell me yeah. sort of how you you are absorbing this latest injury yourself, based on what you know.
2: Yeah, that hundred percent exactly what you said. Right the um, the first time I tore it, you know, it was the first time, first real big injury for me. Right, so it was just a shock and kind of, in a way, kind of I was like, oh. Yeah, sure. Skiing has you, I mean, you tear your ACL in skiing. It's 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 not uncommon, right? The second time was definitely I was so mad and so frustrated and was pretty, you know, down and depressed for a while, right? Afterwards, thinking again, like, what did I do wrong? And, and again, especially doing something like running. Like I wasn't playing soccer, I wasn't skiing again in this instance. Um, but this time in February, I was skiing again. Um, and it was it wasn't a bad wipeout. I just came off a turn, caught a little, there was a ton of powder up in Tahoe, came off a turn, caught a little bit of air and just landed really hard straight down on my skis. And I think just the impact of that, or just the way that I landed was enough to, you know, pop my ACL. Um, And the funniest thing is my brother was skiing behind me and he's like, What are you doing? Like, it just looked like I sat down in the snow, which I essentially did. But as I sat there, the the first thing I noticed was like, I was really calm throughout that whole, like in that whole interim, as we were waiting for ski patrol, I wasn't beating myself up about it. And I wasn't mad. Of of course, I was mad because I was missing a really great powder day and I couldn't ski anymore. Um, But I wasn't mad at myself, which I think was a big kind of turning point in the sense that this was really bad luck, right? Like it's not necessarily, I was doing every, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't like skiing wrong or my technique was wrong or, you know, it wasn't necessarily my body, but it was bad luck, right? And to your point, right? Of course, there are genetic-ish things, or like there might be like physiological things or anatomical things that, sure, might increase my risk for injury. But there are all these other things outside of that, right? The environmental factors around that also influence injury rates. So it's not
1: just on us. Absolutely, and and to your point, you talk in the book about things as simple as equipment. So you talk about bras, for example, but that chapter where you talk about equipment, um, Shrink It Pink, I think was the name of the chapter. It got me thinking, and I'm sure this is something you're thinking about is, are should there be better equipment designed for women? So for example, skis. Skis are not gender specific.
2: Yeah. So it was a really interesting, that was actually one of my favorite chapters to look at because you know, I think as we've all seen as women who are active and athletic, there is this pattern of shrinking it and pinking it, right? Like taking the, the men's design, making it smaller, putting like a, you know, a pink color or purple color or like floral pattern on something and then marketing it to women. And my question had has always been, well, is that just a marketing you know, strategy, right. To try to bring more women to this product because it looks more feminine, or is there a real reason behind um, like a gender specific reason why we need these specific products? And so what, you know, in, in the research, I think what I've found is a lot of, yes, a lot of those like original shrink it and pink it kind of products don't really meet the needs of women, right. They, they don't, um, whether it is like the physiological stuff in terms of, you know, how we regulate temperature or even just the design, right? It might not meet the the uh, preferences of women. Um, but outside of that, what, as, you know, as the years have gone on, what we've found is is that some companies are now kind of thinking about it in terms of if there is an actual need to create a women-specific product, yes. If the data supports that, yes, we should do that. If there's not, then maybe we just need more choice overall, right? So the example that comes to mind is um, women specific bikes, right? So the thought there is that because our legs are, you know, the the dimensions of our torso and the legs and the arms or whatever is different from men. We need a different size bike or a different dimension bike. Um, but when people actually looked at the data, there was a lot more crossover between men's and women's actual physical dimensions than there was, you know, at the at the ends of that spectrum, right? So there might be a woman who is taller and whose you know legs are longer or whatever it is, right? Who would fit better using a quote unquote men's bike. And there might be some men who are, you know, a a smaller stature who would fit better on a woman's bike, but he might not want that bike because it's pink or purple. Um, so, you know, companies like specialized have, have essentially gotten rid of gen gendering their bikes and they've just made, you know, all of their bikes, you know, in effect, unisex, if you will. But in doing that, they open up choice for both men and women. And then in the places where a gender specific product matters. So like when you when you think about saddles, that's where you have that distinction. That's where you put in the investment and the research to design a product that actually makes sense for a woman who's riding a bike or a man who's riding a bike.
1: I love that. And I think that transitions nicely into how you approach the book and, and sort of why you wrote it. And that is the overarching theme to me and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we are limiting ourselves as a society in sport by bifurcating everything by gender, because it's actually a continuum. In other words, anatomically male, female. However, there are things involved like hormones and one may perform differently by their hormonal makeup. That may not be as clear because they're put in a box where they're competing as a man or a woman. I don't know if I'm articulating this that well, but you use the word continuum a lot and yeah. that's how you looked at the research. So can you talk about that a little bit and explain it better than I probably have?
2: No, because it is, I feel like it's an, it's, it is a nuanced topic or situation, right? Because I think when I started thinking about this topic, I almost kind of assumed that it would be men in one bucket, women in another bucket in the sense that, you know, if everything that we know about exercise and sports science is based on men, then women totally need something different, right? Like we need a whole other type of training plan and what, and whatnot, and that's not to say there are 100% are sex-based differences right physiologically anatomically biologically those exist but what i'm what i think what's interesting is that while those differences exist there is a lot of overlap between those two groups so if you think about it it's it's almost like a venn diagram right um so you do have this this section that overlaps um but because we've only studied the, the man's circle, we don't know the nature of that overlap. We don't know where the women's circle overlaps with the man's and where it stands on its own because we haven't asked those questions yet um, and we haven't investigated it. Um, and so by creating a more diverse scientific literature base, right, and by studying more diverse people, uh, you know, men and women you know, across races, across ethnicities, you know, in non-Western countries too, right? We learn more about humans overall, right? Across the sex and gender spectrum. Um, And just, we have more data to, to figure out how to help people the best way. Because if, again, if we're only looking at men and it's predominantly men, young men from Western nations, right? We're doing a pretty good job in terms of helping them figure out what to do. And we're leaving all these other people behind. And again, it's not to say that, you know, you, I, I think there's a lot of solid research, right? In terms of like periodization training and all of that, that will very likely and will, you know, apply to most people, but there might be some nuances here and there that, you know, could benefit women more, right. That could help us maybe just eke out a little bit more, might just help us feel a little bit better.
1: So why aren't we taking better care of our women and girls, given that we know this is a problem. And certainly uh, Stacey Sims has, has coined the phrase women are not small men. We're aware of the problem, why aren't we doing a better job of, of taking care of our, our women and girls so that this research can surface and be applied in a meaningful way?
2: Yeah, I feel like it just hasn't been a priority in sports or in science in general and then in our society, right, overall. But in sports and science, if you think about it, those are two domains that um, were developed essentially you know, for men, they're pretty masculine domains. Like sports has always been that way, right? Since the, the ancient Greeks and Romans, like that's that's the place where men display their masculinity and like their power and kind of dominance and all of that. And women have have never had a space carved out specifically for them in, the, in that realm. And when you think about sports science in a similar way, the way that that field grew up was... um. You know, looking at sports performance and the people at the time, right, who are the athletes are going to be men. And so you have these methodologies that are developed in a way that, you know, at the time makes sense because, okay, if we're going to be studying men, this is what it is. And then you have these sports science, you know, these prominent sports science. Or, researchers who then teach their students and, you know, other staff who then go off and set up their own labs and take that methodology with them, right? It just becomes a standard that gets replicated over and over again. And you don't even realize that you're leaving women out because they weren't considered in the first place, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So how do do you think your book will help? This is a leading question. I just, I, I think I know why you wrote this book, but now that you're going to get this book in the hands, hopefully, of people who will help support the research. How do you think the connection can be made from leaping from incl- inclusion of more people, diverse men and women, women and men, into these scientific studies, taking that research, applying it to Newer athletes. Mm-hmm. So they don't suffer from the same misfortune, for example, as what Kara Goucher just shared. Yeah. Um, so how do how do we bridge that gap in a way that it won't take another 50 years? Yeah, and I'm not expecting I'm... <laughs> you to solve the world's problems, but I'm, I'm guessing you've been thinking. I would about. love to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be fantastic, right? <laughs> um,
2: I think part of it, though, is what you said, right? Like, we have stories like Kara's and Lauren Fleshman's and, um, you know, all these stories about the you know collegiate cross-country and track runners coming out about their experiences. But so often those experiences are kind of brushed aside, right? As one-off situations or like, they just had a bad coach or they just, you know, their problem, you know, they have whatever issues of their own. Um, And then similarly in my work, right, when I'm writing articles, there would always be, you know, articles about the female athlete triad, and everybody would be up in arms, like, "Oh my God, what? You know, what is this? this is so important." And then a couple months later, or a year later, there'd be another article. It's like essentially the same thing, right? It just felt like you were you were like skipping a record, like you're just stuck on the same track. Um, and it was frustrating because I'm like, we've known about like, for example, the female athlete triad since like the '80s, '90s, um, and yet it's still like, oh my God, this is big news, right? So my hope with this book is that and and largely the reason why I wanted to write it was because I felt like we needed, um, there was nothing out there that brought all of these topics together under one umbrella, right? And kind of looked at what are the systems and institutions that underlie all of this that then make this possible, right? That make it so that we are consistently ignoring women's needs and not taking them seriously. And so my hope is that by kind of, maybe call, you know, ideally, like calling attention to some of these systemic issues and biases that are baked into the systems, um, that we can call attention to that, right? And start to pay attention, like, oh, wait, this isn't just one person's problem, one athlete's problem. This is like, we need to rethink how we're going about this, right? if If we really do care about girls and women. And sports, right? Like if we actually care about them and their health, and their long-term athlete develop, athletic development, and their well-being, then yes, we need to look at these underlying causes.
1: Absolutely, and you address some of those. And and without giving away the book, I just wanted to dig into a couple of those systems that you just referenced to give examples. The first one really struck me was the concussion testing system. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So, um, what's interesting with concussion is like, we often hear that, um, concussion outcomes, there's a difference, difference in concussion outcomes between men and women that women tend to take longer to recover from concussion than men and take longer to return to sport. Um, and so again, it's easy to think, well, there's gotta be something wrong with these women's bodies, right? If they're not recovering in the same way as men, if men are more durable, right? If they're the standard, then there's something wrong with women's bodies. But some of the research has come out that and looked at, in fact, if, if men, and I believe the, the study population was younger. So it was like, I think high school or college athletes. But if those boys and girls were concussed, and they access care at within the same time frame. So if they saw a medical specialist or doctor within the same time frame, those di- disparities and outcomes disappeared. So it begs the question, right? Like is there really a, a you know a real physiological reason for this or is it that we're not paying attention to our girls and getting them to care fast enough? And there could be a a lot of reasons for this, right? It could be that um, concussion symptoms and girls differ from boys. And so we're all the research is on boys and we're more familiar with those symptoms that we're missing something on the girl's side and not paying attention to it. It could be frankly resources, right? If there are actually trainers or medical, medical professionals on the sidelines of boys games who are doing concussion protocol, right. And, and screening right then and there, And if those aren't present at the girls games, then of course, there's going to be a delay in care. Um, so it's, it's things like that, that again, begs the question of sure, there are sex based differences. Sure. There are, you know, potential physiological reasons for some of this, but what else is going on in the environment around us that could be contributing to these disparities?
1: Absolutely. And I, I found that so interesting. And, um, indulge me because I'm going through it right now. I also found your discussion about the systems that, um, support ACL injuries and the prol- proliferation of ACL in- injuries in girls. And why is that? And, and I've known about this for years. I've seen firsthand. So many of my kids, friends who have ACL injuries are girls, a lot of volleyball, soccer players, yeah. for example, I always thought it had something that only had to do with hip alignment, development, um, the body changing through puberty. and, And of course, because it coincided with the teen years, but you pointed out some systems that actually might also be contributing to ACL injuries among girls. If you don't mind talking about that as well.
2: No, absolutely. As a subject near and dear to my heart.
1: Um, but that's the, that's what I
2: grew up understanding, right? It's that it's the wider pelvis and your Q angle and, you know, potentially your ligaments are more lax during certain parts of your menstrual cycle. But if you think about that too, as a girl or woman, that's pretty depressing because you can't do anything about that, right? Like that's your body. So then what are you left to do? Um, so it's, One of the interesting things is, is if we think about it, right, strength is often considered, you know, a risk factor. So, you know, the idea is that boys have more muscle mass or men have more muscle mass than women. So that could potentially be a reason why they are less susceptible to these traumatic knee injuries because girls have, you know, girls and women have less muscle mass. But then if you think about it, right, who's encouraged to go to the gym and strength train. It's the boys, right? Starting from high school, like I have a I have a high school age son, and you know he plays baseball, and that's during the off season. Like his coach has them in the weight room all the time. But are we doing that same? Are we treating the girls the same way? Are we encouraging them to go and learn how to lift weights, move their bodies, help make their bodies more resilient, especially during this period of adolescence where they are growing and they're changing and They need some more help in kind of, um, managing their bodies during that time, right. And, and learning how to use and move their bodies. So that's, that's one piece. The other piece that was interesting to me, they did some research looking at dancers. And so if you think about it, right. Dancers are jumping and landing on one foot in the same way that basketball players do and soccer players do, um, but there's not that same disparity in ACL injuries between boys and girls in dance. And so they wanted to, you know, look at, it's like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. So they, you know, they tested boys and girl dancers and, you know, had them stand on a platform and on, on one leg and then just drop straight down, right. And land on one foot. Um, And they watched both the force that went through the knee, as well as how they, um, recruited their muscles and how they managed the landing, right And so both the boys and girls use similar strategies you know their knee didn't wobble in inward they used more of their posterior chain to help stabilize themselves. Then they looked at team sports players right boys and girls and what they found is is that the you know boy and girl dancers and the boy team sports players, again all use similar landing strategies like they knew how to like control their bodies whereas the girl team sports players didn't you saw more of that knee wobble which is associated with you know knee injury um you saw less like stabilization they were kind of like moving all over the place right and less stable so again it's this question of are the Girl dancers, because a lot of them probably have been dancing since they're little, and that having that exposure of learning how to use their body, learning how to land safely, does that potentially make a difference, right? If we are teaching kids at a young age, how to like actually use their bodies, right? That seems like it could potentially make a difference.
1: Yeah. I really, that example really struck me um, in particular. And then of course the hockey coach mentioned in your book who similarly exposed girls to movement patterns that they may not have been exposed to before. And on her team specifically, this coach's team, there were less injuries because those, those girls had exposure.
2: Yeah. And so like you, you think about Right. It's a it's if you step back and think culturally, it, it goes back to, you know, the the messages that we're sending girls or the beliefs of, about how we think girls need to act and portray themselves in society, right? You can't sure play sports, but you can't be too athletic, you can't be too muscular, right? You can't, you still need to look like a girl or act like a girl. And in, you know, are some of those um ideas really holding us back right not not just as a society in general but like are we really doing a disservice to our young girls
1: yeah and and i think people listening may say well i don't i'm not raising my girl to be that way and i i am not either but i think there are institutions that we can't control as parents even coaches can't control that are that are there and and one that comes to mind for me of course is diet culture 100% so, Fueling, you know, you mentioned the female athlete triad. We, we understand the, the consequences of underfueling, but there's so much more to it. And can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacts, um, female athletes?
2: Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I feel like diet culture really does a number <laughs> on all of us from such a young age in terms of, you know, this ideal body that we're supposed to look like. And, you know, even as, as athletic people, right. Like this ideal image of what, you know, someone who's sporty or who's an, who's a good athlete needs to look like, like,
1: like runner's world. I I'm sorry, but like every cover of runner's world <laughs> seems to have the same body. Yes. There are sometimes exceptions, but yes, sorry. Yeah. yeah. no,
2: no, no. But, but yeah. it it's, it's something that seeps into you. Right. And then, you know, I can't remember the stats right now, but like girls at young, younger and younger ages are starting to diet. Right. And like trying to restrict their food or, you know, thinking about food in such a not helpful way. Right. Whereas if you are an athlete or if you, you know, not even just an athlete, if you just want to be a healthy person, right. You need good nutrition, good food, enough energy to fuel your body um, so that it can do all the things that it wants to do, but also so that you can grow and so you can be healthy in the long term. And I think that, you know, we often miss that mark so much in our emphasis around like just aesthetics. And you know, then we kind of wonder like if you're underfueling your body, you, you you obviously are probably going to start to feel crappy at some point, right? Or you're not going to hit the goals that you have or you're not going to achieve the gains the strength gains that you're looking for. But then and then you wonder like why isn't this working? Why, you know, why aren't I feeling better? Um without realizing that it's it could be something as simple as just eating more.
1: Right. And then there's something bigger too, which is the experts in this are trained in in a construct that again, it's male versus female, if you look at food labels or, you know, of course it shows calories, but if you look at like recommended calories, it's always, of course, a division between men and women, but it's so much more than weight. There are so many more things at play. And to that end, even when we're given general nutrition guidance as runners, of course, we, we love working with registered dietitians, but that's not always an option. So we all get our nutrition and it's not, necessarily tailored toward a woman. Um, I believe most of it's derived from male performance. So Yeah.
2: yeah, there, there isn't a lot of right specific research, um, tailored to women. And so that means that we don't have nutrition guidelines that may be most relevant to us, but I think the, really the point that I hope to make in, especially that chapter is just bottom line right if you want to be healthy you want to be happy you want to like be able to move your body and you know achieve your athletic goals you bottom line you need to make sure you're eating enough right like cuz it's so easy to get caught up in all of these diet trends and like low carb the intermittent fasting paleo keto what all of these things because it seems like well if i just follow this i will achieve my goals right it's someone telling me what to do but Bottom line, especially for women, it's so important just to make sure you're getting enough energy into your body in general, because once you start dipping below that, right? Once you are in an energy deficient state, it creates this whole cascade of problems in your body, right? And a lot of it, you won't see on the surface initially. It'll... You know, it might take a little while, but, you know, it, it starts to mess with your your menstrual cycle, which is super important with all this, you know, right? Like all those hormones are important for like muscle gain, for bone health, for cardiovascular health. We need that circulating hormone in our bodies to make sure that we are staying healthy. Um, and it's, you know, I think some of the research was like, it's even if you're cutting short of your calories, like 300 calories, which isn't a lot right? Like I tried to do this math the other day on another podcast and I totally failed. So I'm not even going to try now, but, or like to make an equivalent of what that might be, but like 300 calories, right? That's, that's not that much. But if you do that, you know, consistently, it, it starts, it does start to mess with your menstrual cycle, even in like, it's like less than a week, right? Like if you test the blood, you can start to see some of the differences in your hormone levels. And, you know, it's making sure that even if you are within a 24 hour period, you know, quote unquote, meeting your energy needs, it's making sure you're not dipping too low at any one period during that day too. So making sure you're you're pretty even, right? So if you, like I think of it as a graph, right? You don't want to go too far below that X axis. Um, Otherwise you really are digging yourself into a hole.
1: Which really aligns with all of the research to show that intermittent fasting is not the best thing for, female athletes. Um, it may work for certain people in certain circumstances, but if you're trying to pursue a sport and you have the dips that you just mentioned for long periods of time, that's not only going to affect your hormones, but it's also going to, of course, perfect your performance and mental health, like anxiety yeah. It's shown anxiety increases when, um, you're not fueled properly. And, of course, and, and we can talk about this separately, but that yeah. may be why there's so much. One of the reasons that there's a lot more anxiety or reported anxiety is if you're underfueled, that affects you internally, not just physically, but mentally.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, um you know, relative energy deficiency in sport, right? Red, red ass um, researchers have found, right. That when you are in this low energy, energy availability state. In other words, your body's not getting enough energy, uh, fuel to support not only the activity of, of just daily life, but also to support your, your exercise and training that there is this huge constellation of, of impact. Like you said, like mental health, it's bone health, it's cardiovascular health, it's gut health. Um, it's all these different things and then on top of that there are all these performance issues right there it is you're not performing well you have a harder time recovering you have a harder time adapting to your training you it might be why you're injured too right um so it's it is really understanding that fuel really matters a lot more than i think we give it credit for and i will say though i think one of the things that is heartening, especially in the running community is I feel like this message is starting to get out more. There's a lot more people talking about this and recognizing that this isn't important. Um, And I think that that's a, that's an enormous first step.
1: Huge. And if we can get the running community to get behind fueling all the time, not just around races and performance, I think that would really help too. I yeah. think we're getting there, but I think that message is so critical. And it's not just about race week or even the few weeks leading up to race. It's it's all the time. All the time. Yeah. And so switching gears a little bit, you mentioned um red s, but red s doesn't just happen um for women mm-hmm. while they're um pre-menopausal. Of course red s happens postmenopausal and you touch on menopause in your book, but as you know, and as you talk about in your book, there are more female athletes than ever that are in this phase of life. And it's important to understand that again, hormones impact performance, but that doesn't mean menopausal women should be counted out. What have you found um, in writing your book that has helped you better understand and what work needs to be done in your opinion immediately to improve performance for menopausal women.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, if you think about it, this menopause transition, it's kind of the winding down of the menstrual cycle, right? So um, hormones (laughs) start to go pretty erratic and haywire the like ups and downs. um, But really the, the hallmark trait is that, you know, the hormone levels are, are dropping, right? Precipitously. Um, and if you think about it, hormones like estrogen are partly responsible for why exercise feels as good as it does, you know, in our younger years, like I said, it's, it gives us energy, it helps us build muscle and maintain muscle mass, makes our bones stronger. So when you take that away, it's kind of no wonder that working out and exercising start to feel hard and kind of crappy. And I know for myself, like I, I notice like my muscle mass is a hundred percent seems to be disappearing before my eyes. Um, and it's so frustrating, right? Like it feels like, well, what's going on. And I think the inclination is, and I know this has been my inclination is that I will want to double down right? Like I will want to like work harder, you know, kind of like banging my head against the walls. Like it's because I'm not doing enough. Um, And so what I really learned through this research is that it's, again, it's not, I'm not necessarily doing enough, which, you know, that's a whole other story. There for sure are more things I could be doing, but recognizing that these are real physiological changes that are happening in, happening in my body, you know, like with, like with the injury piece of it, right. It's, it's recognizing that I it's, it's not that I can't do anything about it, but there might be things that I can do to work with these changes rather than constantly fight it and be like, I need you to work out like you did when you were 30 and feeling your fittest and greatest and all of this, because that's not going to work for me right now. So that's things like, um, 400%, you know, Getting in more strength training and lifting heavier weights, because it's not just the age-related muscle decline, it is this estrogen-related muscle decline too. Um, it's things like really paying attention to how my body feels, right? So using things like rate of perceived exertion. So it's even if I feel crappy, if I'm still working out at that, you know, level where I feel like. Right. Like I'm working to my max, even if that is much lower than it might have been, you know, at at a younger age, I'm still working at that perceived level of my max. Right. And And similarly, on the days that I don't feel great, it is toggling it down or maybe shifting things around and understanding that that's okay because this really is a new chapter in my like active life that similar to puberty, I kind of have to figure out and it's frustrating (laughs) and it's, you know, confusing, but, you know, trying to just be a patient and kind of give myself a little bit of grace as I work through this and figure out like, well, what makes my body feel the best now?
1: Absolutely. And, and we are all of us kind of an experiment because there's never been as many athletes today as uh, there's never been this many Menopausal athletes yeah. as they're from today, so we all are actively, whether we want to or not, sort of providing the data for future athletes in this generation. And I like what you say about don't fight it and and listen to your body, and listen to what how your body reacts to things, and and implement those changes and lean into the things that feel great, and when things don't feel as great. Don't. So one example you provide in your book, and I don't, I think she's about 10 years younger, but she's a master's athlete is Camille Heron. Who's one of, if not the best endurance athlete out there right now. And she, you talk about how she leaned into the thing that she was really good at in developing her running to a degree where she's, she's basically beating all of the men in her forties. And can you talk a little bit about that and how she approached her running and, and using what you just shared?
2: Yeah. So Camille is, I mean, she's phenomenal, right? Like in what she's been able to do and continue to be able to do. Um, and she's, when we talked, she talked a lot about how, when she was younger, like in high school, um, a lot of her coaches kind of just emphasized like a lot of intensity, right? The, they didn't really teach her how to run slow and recover, um, and she paid the price. She had a, a ton of stress fractures. She had to medically retire. You know, she didn't compete. And um, I think aside from maybe a year in college or something like that, um, but anyhow, she realized that when she actually just took it slow and ran easy her body thrived, right? Like she was, you know, all of a sudden running like 70 miles a week and then, you know, doing really well and then building more mileage. And then I've talked to her recently um, because she also splits up her um, her runs, right? So that she's not, and she doesn't, I think, you know, this is a woman who runs like 100, 200 miles, right? at a, During these competitions, her longest runs, Top out at, I want to say she's told me like eighteen to twenty-two miles, like at a time, which is
1: nothing for the weekly mileage. Yeah, right.
2: So she, what she she does, she does a lot of doubles because she has a science background and she studied bone health as a graduate student. And what she found is is that that kind of um, repeated loading, but giving a rest period between those loading, is actually the best for bone health. And again, this is take you know this is taking laboratory studies and you know a very specific thing in a you know in a lab setting and then she's trying to implement it and she obviously has you know great genes and like a lot of other things going for her so it might be why it works but it's really interesting in the fact that again she's she's kind of bucking the trend, if you will, in like ultra running of doing these like massive days and like back-to-back days and all of these things where, you know, she's found this way that she can stimulate her bones. She can stimulate her cardiovascular system in a way that she's not running herself down, right? And she's still able to do these incredible feats of endurance and compete well.
1: Yeah, I love following her on Twitter because she has a lot. She always tweets the things she's doing and she's very forthcoming with her pieces. And I feel like she's sort of the voice of reason in a kind of a crazy sport in endurance and trail running where she's running well, the ultra and trail running rather, well, she's running well beyond um, sort of the normal distances. And she seems to be doing it in a very healthy logical way to, to not um, cause her body to be overly trained and fatigued. And I I really love that you highlighted her in the book. So lastly, I just wanted to touch briefly on something that could be a whole other subject as well, and that is youth sports. Yeah. And um, there is a problem in youth sports. Part of it is coaching. Part of it is this is society and expectations and uh, part of it is parenting, I hate to say. So talk a little bit about your findings and, and what changes you think are needed.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, youth sport, there is a lot of problem in youth sports. And, you know, it's a huge industry. It's a $19 billion industry. And so there's all this pressure to get kids involved in sports early and get them specialized, like kind of move them up the ladder, right? So it's forcing kids to specialize early, to train year round, to take on higher training loads at younger ages. And, you know, I would argue that's at the expense of longer term athlete development and health. Um, And it seems like girls in particular are getting the short end of the stick around this because they're more likely to experience overuse injuries and burnout, you know the traumatic injuries that we talked about like knee like acl tears um as well as you know disordered eating and body image issues and they're also more likely to walk away from sport it's, i think the stat is like 51% of girls leave sport by the age of 17 which is a huge number right who are missing out on all these incredible benefits of of being active and playing sports and so what i would argue is that a big part of the reason that girls might be you know uh experiencing a lot of these challenges is because there is a lack of understanding of girls physiology as well as um what's appropriate for those bodies that are still maturing right um so again because we think of boys sure absolutely boys go through puberty and they're changing and growing like crazy and their hormones are raging and all of that but the way that their systems are set up is that they all of those things seem to help them in terms of athletic development. They come out taller and stronger with more muscle mass. Um, they Their progression seems to be more stepwise, right? Whereas girls, it just seems like it's haywire, right? It seems like they, you know, progression stalls and dips and kinks and goes kind of all over the place. Um, and we don't, it seems like we don't know why. And again, it makes it feel like well, why aren't what's wrong with girls right what's wrong with their bodies um and i like to kind of use the image of almost like blowing glass right so you have this like molten piece of glass that is growing and changing and trying shifting during this period of time but it's really pliable right it's it's actually pretty vulnerable in this state um and so as girls are adjusting to their new height they're adjusting to widening hips and growing breasts and all the hormones it's no wonder that they feel out of place or clumsy in their body right and that can then translate into the sorry into the reason that um they might not be performing as well um so i think you know there we need a lot more research on this so that parents and and doctors and coaches and the athletes themselves have better guidance around these issues and and know how to what they could potentially do right uh to accommodate for some of these diff- some of these growth and maturation um challenges and then i think it's we also need to teach girls right how to make their bodies more resilient i mean we talked about strength training earlier but that's i think a key piece of it teaching them how to strength train so that as they go through this period of transition their body is more capable of managing some of that load of you know stabilizing itself in these you know complex movement patterns um it's teaching them again about nutrition too right and emphasizing the fact that you need to eat because it's really important not only for your cycle but for your bone health and that has again long term consequences and teaching them about recovery but i really think that the most important piece of it is really giving girls space and patience to let them grow and develop along their their own timeline right like we can't force fit them into a certain model because when we try to do that we're going to break them right we're not only going to break potentially break them physically but i feel like we're also going to break their will and their love and desire to be active and play sports so it's being patient, allowing, you know, reassuring them that, yeah, this sucks. This is really hard and frustrating. But once you get through this on the other side, your body's going to be so much stronger, so much more resilient and durable, and you're going to do amazing things because that's when you want to peak athletically, right? You don't want to peak in your teenage years and then that's be it. You want to think about this long-term health.
1: Amen. That's so well said and so important. And definitely, the the most recent books by Lauren Fleshman and Kara Goucher illuminate that and how important it is to be patient. Because if either if, especially if Kara wasn't patient, she wouldn't be where where she was as a result. And Lauren's observations and looking at teammates and the way they treated their bodies, those books really highlight what you just shared. But that message is so important and. I think that message can also be used toward women in other stages of their lives whether it's pregnancy post pregnancy and menopause wait it out don't give up and and know that your body eventually will cooperate but there there's going to be ebbs and flows as your a body adjusts to the new normal for your body and I I just really appreciate you writing this book and and you're so smart Christine I could listen to you forever I feel like Um, you and Alex Hutchinson, who writes a lot of science too, need to get together and just have like a meeting of the minds. Both of you have some great writings. and, And this book in particular Unbelievably to me is the first of its kind and congratulations on such a, such a wonderful product and I'm excited for others to read it. And I hope it gets into the hands of many, many coaches because that's who really needs to read this as well. Yeah. Our listeners where they can buy your book when it comes out and where they can find you.
2: Yeah, so up to speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes comes out May sixteenth, um, and it will be available anywhere books are sold. Um, and it's available a in, in hardback, um, as an audiobook, as well as an ebook. Yeah, and I'm I'm I am so excited. I've been working on this for so long. I'm really excited for it to finally be out in the world and to be in the hands of readers.
1: Where can listeners oh. find you? Also on social media and and yes. your work as well, because you've done a lot of work.
2: Yeah, so on social media, I am at CYU888, so three eights is when I decided my handles for things before I really thought about branding of any (laughs) sort. So I'm stuck with this now. Um, Yeah. So, you know, you can find my, find me there. Um, I also have a substack that I am trying to write for regularly now. Um, But all of that information is actually on my website as well, which is um, christinemu.com. And I have links to some of my recent work there.
1: Great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. So, Christine, thank you so much for talking with me today. You were just terrific. And I I can't wait for this book to get into the hands of many of our listeners. And thank you so much for writing it.
2: No, thank you for having me. This was super fun.
1: Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others. And please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.